welcome to another episode of the Amplify Horse Racing Podcast. My name is Anise Montpleasure, and I am the Equine Education Coordinator for the Kentucky Equine Education Project Foundation and the president of Amplify Horse Racing. And I am joined by my co-hosts, Timothy Lateau, former Amplify Horse Racing mentee and amazing student extraordinaire of the industry and every uh, media extracurricular he could possibly be involved in. And Caitlin Christofferson of Grand Slam Social. How's it going, guys? It's going pretty good. Uh, it's been a, uh, a fun summer so far. I know that you and Caitlin were at the Belmont a couple of weeks ago, back when we recorded our last episode. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, really looking forward to this episode. Yeah, super excited to be back. Um, I cannot believe it's almost July. <laughs> it feels like the summer is flying. Yeah, no kidding. It's, I don't know what it is about this year, but it seems like everything is going 10 times faster than the past two years. But Belmont was awesome. Timothy, we missed you. Not that I hardly saw or got to hang out with Caitlin at all because everybody <laughs> was running in different directions. But I, uh, it was my first Belmont, and I think that it was probably my favorite of the three Triple Crown races. Uh, and I don't know, Caitlin, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But just in terms of the fan experience, I know that everybody, you know, there are different types of fans that go to these events from your diehard racing fans to those that are more there for the entertainment. I know it's important to have offerings for everyone, but I kind of loved the traditional feel of the Belmont in that it felt like most everyone was there for the racing the racing was incredible. It was a little easier to move around. Yeah. <laughs> Belmont is huge, so I mean that makes it easier. But you know, maybe a, a few fewer people yeah, than I mean, the Derby. <laughs> I've never been to Preakness, so I don't have um, that to compare it to. But I have been to uh, Derby twice, and I don't. I mean, they're just so different. But Belmont's so unique. You're right there, like you know, by New York City, um, whenever they play New York, New York before the race, that always gets me. It's just, it's just such a different experience. But I, I would, um, I would agree that it's definitely, um, you know, it, it's, a, I guess, a bit more focused on kind of like, more of a hardcore racing fan. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just, like you said, it's totally different, but they're both both very unique and special in their own way. <laughs> but it was a yeah. great, gosh, talk about a great day of racing um, from start to finish. That was just like a huge day. So now I think everyone has pretty much taken a deep breath in the industry. Now that we've gotten through the triple crown season, which is always kind of a haul, depending on what your job is and your workload looks like. And this year, well, this I guess we can say summer. Yes, it was officially summer on the date of the Grayson Jockey Club Welfare and Safety of the Racehorse Summit, but that took place on June 22, so we're a week past that, and our today's guest can now take a deep breath now that he's gotten through all of the planning and logistics of that, but I'm really excited, guys, to be joined by Jamie Hayden, president of the Grayson Jockey Club Research Foundation. And I had the opportunity to be part of the incredible summit that they put on last week, which took place at Keeneland. 
And I have to admit that in, in the past, which this is a, an event that takes place every other year, I've tuned in for bits and pieces and read recaps of it, but I haven't sat down to really listen to and absorb the entire thing. And I was blown away by the research and innovations and technology all for, for the welfare and safety of our horses. So Jamie, thank you so much for, for joining us today and for being willing to talk about what you do and talk about Grayson and the research that you guys are involved in. Because I feel like it's kind of one of those things that, you know, maybe not everybody understands the full scope of what you do. So welcome. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Anise, Timothy, and Caitlin. I couldn't be more thrilled to be on your podcast. I really appreciate it. And I'd just like to say before we get started, uh, if you haven't had a chance to watch the Welfare and Safety Summit or weren't there, uh, Anise was our master of ceremonies and she's an absolute star and did a fantastic job. So uh, big thumbs, two double thumbs up from us over here at Grayson and the Jockey Club for uh, helping us out, Anise. And I know your co-hosts know what kind of talent you are, but uh, thank you so much for helping us out first. It was it was a blast. It was an honor to be there and be part of it and and to host an Amplify panel too, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, at some point in the podcast. And we all yeah. we have a whole list of questions for you, but I think before we dive into really the summit side of things, I would love to know how how you got involved in the industry and what sort of led you to where you're at today. Yeah, so um you sent me uh, some questions, but that, that one, I, I only read that first one, actually, and I had to go digging through some stuff uh, because I wanted to make sure I got it right. And it it was on April 4th, 1987, the third race at Keeneland. I was on spring break as an 11-year-old in Kentucky, and it was one of those April days where it snowed. Uh, my mother was a school teacher, and she wouldn't get out of bed to go to the races with us. So I bet five across the board on a horse called She's a Sleeper because uh, mom wouldn't get out of bed and it came back. It was 10, uh, 10 to 1 and 1. So I got back like $62 and I thought I was rich at that point uh, as an 11-year-old cashing in my first wager. So at that point, I was, I was pretty much enthralled with horse racing. I loved it and would go to a lot of races and it helped that my dad worked for the jockey club uh, for 36 years. He actually started, he was a high school history teacher and started uh, proofing cataloging pages here in the summer uh, and never went back to teaching high school High school and just worked his way up through the jockey club ladder uh, from being a summer intern, basically. So uh, I've been around it my whole life, but on, in a different way in the business and the data and the gambling side of it. Uh, most people in Central Kentucky, when they grow up, uh, grow up touching horses, owning horses. And uh, that, that wasn't my realization. I grew up around the business side of it, much like uh, guys outside of Central Kentucky. So uh, when a lot of people, you know, they say outsiders, I always felt like an outsider too, uh, even here in Kentucky, because I, I didn't own horses. I didn't touch horses. I didn't groom horses. I didn't go uh, work at the sales growing up. I, I worked in office buildings in the horse racing industry. So that, that's how I, I got involved in and fell in love with horse racing. Uh, now, my first, first horse racing job was about as glamorous as it gets, and that was on to the end of a weed eater 
and picking up rocks and mucking stalls for the Keeneland maintenance crew every summer. Uh, so, uh, you know, when you didn't have a weed eater or one of those other fun jobs, they'd hand you a hand scraper and look at you and say, there sure is a lot of fence out there. I'd get the scraping. And you'd have a partner and you'd walk for a week scraping foreboard fences. So uh, that was my first foray into uh, the horse racing industry uh, was on the maintenance crew doing anything that uh, they told you to out there. Um, one of the fun jobs for the summer was they lined all 13 or 14 of us summer help before they had a rock picker to drag over the track. And we were the rock pickers. And we'd walk shoulder to shoulder with our water buckets and dump rocks in the bucket four times in the morning. They'd harrow it four times in the afternoon. That was a fun week's worth of work. So uh, anything and everything uh, starting off on the maintenance crew. That's how I fell in love with horse racing. And then that's really my first job. That's so funny. I uh, This is not horse racing related at all, but my first ever job was as a corn pollinator. And there really is something humbling about, you know, your first job being some kind of manual labor and getting out there and, you know, meeting people and even working in maintenance, you get to meet a lot of people <laughs> in different aspects of the industry. <laughs> yeah, that. It, it was great. It, it you know, and it, it's fascinating working over there because those, uh, their son, their dads had worked there. They, that was a coveted job and, uh, working at Keeneland was uh, uh, in the community was a coveted spot, and you know they, they would really uh, take pride in it. And it shows when you go to the facility, right? Because it's beautifully manicured and everything's in place, and everything looks like it was made uh, in matching in the original design. So uh, they really put effort into it, and it goes all the way down to weed eating the parking lot. Quite frankly, wow, Caitlin, you sounded like you were trying to ask something oh no I was just uh gonna say my first job uh, when I was like seven or eight um well I guess I was volunteering but yeah I was you know out there doing manual labor I was um working at a um it was called pony land <laughs> so it was uh, a bunch of ponies but uh yeah there's definitely something to be said for like you said manual labor and uh and getting out there and we um, like gave pony rides to people and yeah uh, it, it definitely instills a sense of um, or a certain work ethic from a young age. Yeah I was just gonna say that too talk about instilling a good work ethic and you know gives you a lot of respect too for you know as you continue as your career transitions and changes into more office work you know I have a tremendous amount of respect for those in the industry who are doing a lot of the direct hands-on work and Absolutely. making the grounds beautiful of different places. But so you're, you're now at the Grayson Jockey Club Foundation. How talk about the organization and what your guys's mission is. Yeah. So Grayson, the individual company Grayson has been around since 1940. Um, in 1939, there was a group of, we'll call them sportsmen. Uh, mainly men uh, who owned farms, uh, were in the equine industry, um, and also realized that the horse and mule were being phased out of military service uh, and saw the cutback in the reliance upon the horse in, our, in their world. 
and they thought, you know, we really love this animal. We we not only love owning horses, but they ride. They were also equestrianist and rode and fox hunt and poloed and did all kinds of stuff. So uh, they recognized that if they uh, did not take care of the animal, that probably no one would because it's not a food chain animal at that point either, right? Post war in 1940, coming out of World War Two, so. Uh, they started raising money just to do equine research. And after they raised a certain amount of money, they gave out the first grant in 1940 uh, to the University of Pennsylvania to study moon blindness for $1,000. So uh, they raised money, they did the work, uh, and they gave out grants every year based on how much money they had, just quietly going about their business. In the Sorry, early I think 80s, that one piece had... A one piece cut out a little bit, Jamie. What was the first grant given for? Oh, I'm sorry. In 1940, we gave out our first grant for moon blindness uh, at the moon University blindness. of Pennsylvania. Oh. Moon blindness. And, you know, it's interesting. We just funded a University of Florida uh, eye drop for the same disease, and that cost 250000 a couple years ago. So, oh, how the price of research keeps going up. Uh, and we're, you know, huh, fighting. Interesting. <laughs> Still fighting so the same the problem. Blindness, that, um, actually, when you, I mean, you look at the horse's eye and it kind of looks like there's a moon mm-hmm. in the cornea, right? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, it, it, yeah, correct. And it usually affects older horses. And, right. um, and, and usually, and what we like to say for Grayson is, and virus disease and injury doesn't go up to a horse and point its finger and say, what are you? The horse answers, and then it attacks. That's just not the way it works. It just happens to them. But there are some breeds and animals and disciplines that make you more susceptible. And Appaloosas, which are usually horses with spots on them, for you guys that don't know or are familiar with the different breed, makes them more susceptible to moon blindness. And I just, we happen to own an uh, old Appaloosa. So, it's kind of one of those problems that hits home, even though you don't realize it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we Grayson was funding research, and in the 80s, the Jockey Club also funded, started a, a Jockey Club Research Foundation to fund equine research, and uh, they, they started uh, talking because there was some crossover, and they merged in 1989 to become the Grayson Jockey Club Research Foundation because... As we said, virus disease and injury doesn't attack breeds, disciplines, size, or shape. It just happens. So even though the impetus in most of the fundraising um, is uh, from the thoroughbred world, it is still fr- it's still because of the thoroughbred pe- sorry. Most of the fundraising comes from the thoroughbred world and the benefits are for all animals. So uh, Appaloosas, Paints, Belgiums, Standard Bread, Saddle Breads, all these horses will benefit from the equine research we're doing. Interesting. I did not know that. That's awesome. I think a lot of people, when they think the Grayson Jockey Club Research Foundation, and this would be me included, I thought that a lot of it was directed at thoroughbreds and I could under you know I can see where just based on the scope of the thoroughbred industry where a lot of funding can come from that aspect but I think it really goes to show the impact that you know maybe 
kind of stems from the thoroughbred industry, but goes out into the wider equine industry and how the entire equine industry can really benefit from this. And that, that is so cool. I honestly had no idea how, how big and widespread the Grace and Jockey Club Research Foundation was in terms of all the different breeds you guys work with. And you probably yeah, so, just heard a very loud fire truck go by. Sorry, guys. It's, it's uh, yeah, so, um, you know, some way to think about it is thoroughbreds, and let's just talk about uh, injuries, not viruses, disease, or reaper, just injuries or performance horses. Thoroughbreds race from two to six, right? So our injuries in the suspensory or lower leg or whatever are going to be predominantly in horses age two to six. Well, high-performance show horses, hunters, eventers, jumping horses, dressage really don't even get started uh, with their show career until four or five. So their high-performance injuries, let's say, are going to occur from the ages of six to 20. So it's not a matter of what you get, it's when you get it. So the research is going to be applicable to all those horses, just a matter of what age they get it. Yeah, yeah, that's a really uh, great point about kind of the age and timeline uh, of, you know, different uh, disciplines um, for those horses. Jamie, is there any, um, uh, like, specific projects, too, that you'd like to uh, tell us about that the um, Grayson Jockey Club is uh, working on? Yeah, I let me just say, I, I'm not going to shortchange anybody. We've, we've funded since the early 80s, uh, I believe, um, over 340 different projects for thir- or $32 million. So we've got a lot of projects that we have funded or in the hopper. But there's some very exciting ones that I'll go over real quick. And this first is this uh, new concept of the PET scan. And uh, we talked about it at the Welfare and Safety Summit. But in 2016, uh, nobody had ever pet scanned a horse before. And that is uh, position. Anise, what is it again? Say, you just went through it with me. It's Positron emission tomography. There you go. <laughs> pet for sure. Positron <laughs> emission tomography. So uh, originally in 2016, you had to anesthetize the horse, put it to sleep, turn it on its side, bring in a huge machine. Um, a human machine that we kind of adapted to the horse's leg and we slid it over top of the leg and it took about 45 minutes to do a leg, but we were able to find uh, bone bruising uh, on bones that we just couldn't see with any x-rays, MRIs, CTs, or any other diagnostic machine. So we were very encouraged about that. And then the team went back and, uh, and let me say at Grayson, we don't fund equipment or principal investigator salary because those uh, individuals should be tenured of the university and have an investment by the university with their salary. And the equipment's going to outlive our research. So we want our money to go to research and the other people can buy equipment. So in 2019-19, they came back and the team had developed a new machine and it was built specifically for horses. And it's a small ring that the horse steps into, it goes around locks via magnet. And if the horse steps into it, it breaks away and you're able to just sedate the horse standing. You can do all four limbs and under the time it took you to do one limb. So that was fantastic. They did the research. And now at the end of this year, we're going to have, I believe, seven or eight machines in North America installed for PET scans and one in Melbourne. So we like to say that's research into action. 
And within six short years, we've gone from a concept to eight facilities around the world benefiting horse health. That's amazing. Just the, I, I don't know. I don't have a math and science brain. I'm very much a communications person. So it was really interesting being at the summit and listening to, you know, just the, the breakdown and explanations of the precise steps that it takes to go from taking this concept and, you know, to think about how in depth that had to be of fully sedating a horse or anesthetizing, I should say, to go through this process initially and then thinking about, you know, the the innovations that it has to take and, and tweaking the method to now be able to have the horse standing sedated and have that kind of system in place where, you know, it's safe enough where if the horse bumps it, it, you know, it can break away rather than, you know, being this static mm. object. So... That is, it's amazing, that yeah, timeline to think that that happened. Through, um, for, you know, it, like you said, I mean, it applies to all, um, all equines because, right, they all deal um, with these injuries. And yeah, it's, uh, as somebody who um, competes um, in the hunter jumpers, I mean, it's also, it's having technology like this. It just, it changes everything. Yeah. So Caitlin, you'll be happy to know then there's, there's one installed already at the new uh, world equestrian center at Ocala with the university of Florida at their hospital. And then, oh, awesome! yeah. And then the other vet clinic in Ocala is installing one in about another month. So there'll be two in Ocala uh, and big sport horse community there in Ocala, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, we've, um, we've been to, World Equestrian Center. Um, I haven't competed there yet, but uh, yeah, I've been out there. It's amazing. So that's um, that's so awesome to know that. Yeah, and there you go. And, that, and that, that's another case of the thoroughbred uh, crowd in the Southern California Found Equine Foundation and the Dolly Green Foundation put up the money to develop that new machine. And now that the new machine is up and running, people are ordering them. So uh, these horses, performance horses all around the world are now going to get the benefit of us diving in and doing that research. Uh, and one will be installed in Europe in short time as well. Um, we've are they are, the companies talks to us a lot and says, thank you for stepping out on a limb and doing this research because it's really going to benefit horses around the world. That's so great. Absolutely love hearing that. I think that goes to show kind of the international impact too that your work is having that that is um you know phenomenal that there's so many other countries that are embracing the research that you've found and and then you know also working towards uh, getting this technology you know overseas so um you know that that really is a great point yeah that we're excited about that one and one other one real quick we're excited about is uh, this October we're we are going to take applications for equine herpes virus. Um, Caitlin will know since she shows horses, this is another one that is just a scourge on our animals. Yeah, yeah, it's been a huge deal um, in the past year, especially it's shut a lot of shows down. Um, Yeah, it's it's been definitely an issue and scary. Yeah, it's it's, it's a neurological disease for all of y'all that don't worry and uh, can go and 
it can cause fatalities in horses if it's not treated and caught. And it's very, very easy virus to pass. Uh, grooms can pass it if they touch a horse, touch a rag, and then touch another horse. Uh, so a lot of different biosecurity measures need to be undertaken. But uh, the current treatments are all three projects that Grayson historically funded to come up with these treatments, and that's the current ones. But we're excited because this October we're going to take uh, applications for special research projects to develop a new vaccine for equine herpes. Uh, we have a gracious donor, uh, John Ballantyne, that put up $2 million for these projects. So in October, we expect to take projects from around the world to develop a new vaccine, and it's going to be built on the same uh, technology that they're doing the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, which is uh, mRNA technology. Uh, we're going to be able to give horses uh, a vaccine, hopefully, for that virus. And the reason we're looking forward to that is because we have a project right now at Texas A&M uh, that is using mRNA vaccines to give our foals antibodies for a respiratory disease baby horses get called rotococcus. And we're in the final uh, horse testing phase of that project down there, and it appears that we're having very good results where a foal was born and we can protect it immediately from this virus uh, with uh, nebulized messenger RNA. So equine herpes virus as well uh, this October, we're really excited about that because uh, when herpes hits, it can shut down uh, whole race meat uh, until you can eradicate it. I actually had the, the opportunity to meet Mr. Ballantyne last year um, because he lives in Fargo, North Dakota. So when I when I went home for my brother's wedding, we'd actually been connected through a, a mutual racetrack connection um, in Fargo. And we got together just to talk horses. And, you know, it's not every day that you have two horse racing aficionados or fans from Fargo, North Dakota. Yeah, what are the chances? And, yeah, and so he went through, he drew me uh, the most incredible diagram and explained mRNA vaccine technology to me on a whiteboard. And I can't say I absorbed or retained all of it, but it was pretty amazing to, you know, to hear about his ambitions to, you know, see the industry really conquer this issue with equine herpes virus. And I thought it was very cool to see that he targeted, uh, you know, Grayson Jockey Club to, to take on that project, because it certainly is a massive project when it comes to the research involved. Wow, that's fascinating. That's so cool, Anise. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's, he's a really cool guy. It's awesome. Um. Jamie, I'd love for you know for you to talk about the takeaways from the summit that happened last week. But you know, as we kind of discussed before we started the podcast, there really is a much wider planning process that goes into it, and it's a massive project for you guys to take on every other year. So, how what was the impetus of the the, the summit when it first began? What what prompted you guys to start doing it and uh, you know, what goes into the planning of it every year that you, you do it? Yeah, so the impetus is really different than what it's uh, evolved into. And the impetus was the Grayson board, uh, Del Hancock, our chairman, Ed Bowen, our previous uh, president, 
and the board were having discussions about the decreasing starts per starter. And they said, hey, mm-hmm. is, is, is there something wrong with the horse? Can he not make as many starts as what he used to? And, and there was a really a simple question as that. And they said, let's get a bunch of people from the industry together and let's ask this question and see what they think. And they quickly found out that the reason starts per starter has gone down is well beyond the scope of a safety and welfare conference, you know. It had to do with purse increases, trainer stats, uh, recuperation of the horse, um, what trainers believed in the new numbers and area about rest and how they ran off of rest. So they said, okay, we can't control the starts per starter number, but what we can't answer any of the questions we want to ask because, quite frankly, in 2006 when we started this, we didn't even know how many horses suffered a fatality on the racetrack. Wow. Yeah. I mean, Caitlin, it's, so you can't even ask the question, what pole did we break down at? How many, how many horses suffered a left front injury? You know, I mean, that's crazy that it was, you know, 2006 was not that long ago. So just thinking about not even having that technology or that like insight, um, you know, less than 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's just, yeah, that's shocking, honestly. Yeah. It, it, you know, it, it just, not that there weren't well-meaning people doing a lot of great things on a local level, or maybe mm-hmm. somebody at Calder or Dr. Go, uh, Scolay, who was doing Southern Cal- uh, Florida at that time, knew in Southern Florida what was happening, but we didn't know it's some of the other places and we couldn't tie it together. We had no national fatality number, you know? And so data, right. Yeah. And, and as you all know, being communications and PR guys is when you don't have the data to answer the questions, you're automatically assumed the worst. Right. So we started out in 2006 and said, we, we, we have to have data. We have to know all this stuff. So the first thing they said was we need to create this equine injury database. So, they started about doing it. They went to paper forms, you know, and probably the, the best message and the most success of the Welfare and Safety Summit and the industry is in 2006, we could not tell you how many horses died on a racetrack. And then now we're not only decreasing that rate by 30% since 2009, we're developing risk factors for veterinarians and veterinarians are developing local risk factors to go through a horse population. So to me, the best success of our industry the last 20 years has been that. And it's hard to tell people that's a success, but we've decreased musculoskeletal fatalities by 30% since 2009. And that's measured because we have the data. Right. But if you're in the industry, you know how huge that is (laughs) because we, you know, we never want to see like any fatalities. So being able to actively reduce and make racing safer all around. It's, I mean, it's, it's so important um, if racing is to continue. Uh, Couldn't agree more. Our goal should always be no fatalities. uh, And if that's an unobtainable goal, we should still go for it every day. Yep. Um, as someone who's made every check of his professional life because of this great noble animal, it's our, it's, it's my duty and it's our duty to protect them. We have. That's so powerful. And I just, I mean, I think 
all of our listeners. I mean, I certainly, I can't tell you how much I appreciate hearing that. Um, and I'm sure, you know, Anise and Timothy will agree because, um, we're, we're all, we're all in this industry because of, you said this noble animal. Um, so, you know, that that's what keeps our world turning. So anything that we can do to make their lives and their experiences better and honor them, I think, um, ultimately is what we all want to do here. One of my favorite quotes from the summit, Dr. Stuart Brown of Keeneland had, he said something like, you know, he was talking about being stewards of the horse, but then he, stewards of the horse, but then he said, um, you know, we, we all work for the horse, basically, and that we are all here working for the horse. And that, you know, it's essentially that not only that the horse is our motivation for, you know, our inspiration to be in, in the sport, but our entire motivation to be, continue being involved in the, in the sport and make the sport better is we are, we are working for the horse. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, if you ask Charles, he would definitely agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Charles, Jamie, Jamie, for a little yeah. background, is my uh, my retired my retired racehorse turned hunter jumper. <laughs> uh, it, it, so it, they're these animals are such majestic, cre- not creatures, but they're just such majestic friends to me. Um, now we all love wagering on them and winning money and stuff, but when you get to have them in your backyard or you get to be around them, you understand that the connection that they have with the human is something special. Um, And if you not, not equine health research, but for your other guys out there, if you go view the uh, therapy horses uh, for the kids that have autism or that are having seizures uh, and they are able to sense the seizures before the children have them, there's some connection that this animal has. Uh, that it's just unlike any other animal on the face of the earth. Um, yeah, so one other great success, I think, from the original summit was you all been around racing. You hear all these, everybody always likes to blame the racetrack, right? It's always the racetrack's fault. Well, we didn't even have a racing services testing lab back in 2006. So racetracks didn't even know who to send their materials to if they thought there was a problem with the racetrack or Hey, we're doing maintenance, but we don't, we're not tracking and following the maintenance. Is this the correct maintenance? Well, I'd like to say now we have a fully integrated racing services and testing laboratory that Dr. McPeterson runs, and it's dedicated just to equine surfaces. Again, here's the thoroughbred world doing work for other breeds and disciplines. Now show jumping facilities and the FEI uses mix lab and his uh, hoof, hoof impact machine to come in and test those equine surfaces when the jumping arenas as well. So we went from not having the equine injury database, not having a racing services testing lab, and now we have these two dedicated things that are just for equine and horse services. Uh, Could not be a bigger service to the racetracks to track their maintenance, their weather, their water, their surface. Uh, What's the content? How much clay does it have? Organic, silt all of that, uh, and surface uh, testing for turf and synthetic in the same lab. So those two things from the original summit 
would just be standalone great accomplishments on their own, not to mention all the other things that have gone along, like the void claim rule and uh, a jockey injury database, the NTRA safety accreditation, RMTC lab accreditation, a host of items that the whole industry came together and helped decrease the fatality rate, quite frankly. Jamie, it's so needed. You know, I mean, people talk about things um, like HISA and how there really like hasn't been um, this, I guess, like national database or kind of national movement and standardization um, of information and research. But it's, I mean, to me, it's so wonderful to know like what is what's happening that you don't necessarily hear about all the time. Like the, the research um, done it, you know, the, your foundation um, and then coming together at the summit. Yeah. I feel like it's one of the most powerful tools that we have to, you know, I don't want to use the, the word defend the sport, but just, you know, to be informed, you know, fans and employees and, you know, stewards of this industry is to be well informed with data and to have an understanding of what is taking place in terms of, you know, the research databases that we have out there being well versed in terms of, you know, the innovations and the updates and the safety measures that have been put in place to make the sport better. And so I need to, I actually have made it my goal to rewatch the summit a few times and try to make myself as well versed as possible on, on the topics that were discussed because I want to be able to, to tell people about it and Mm -hmm. speak in a really well-informed way about all this stuff that is happening because I think there are even people within the industry that don't that don't understand or know of all of this that's going realize on. Realize the depth of yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Jamie, and, and, how did you guys? How do you? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say you said Heisen. and I think important note is that a lot of our work that's been done in the past ten summits is going to be represented in those safety regulations at Heisen. It it's just a natural extension of what we've done. Uh, and we'll continue mm-hmm. to do and provide content and identify jurisdictions and individuals that are making a difference so we can highlight those efforts and people can use them at their local jurisdiction as well. So I think you're going to see, you know, a lot of things that have been discussed at the past nine summits are going to be included in those highs of regulations that are going to be for the safety of the horse. And I think it's important to note that, you know, some of the smaller uh, regional tracks or um you know racing clubs like they may not necessarily have the funding or the capability or even the manpower to to do collect you know what you guys are delving into so it it really is like a service to the industry um to be able to provide that information because it's not necessarily something that, you know, here in Texas might be like at the, the forefront of uh, having money like earmarked every year. Um, it, you know, obviously it's millions of dollars, what you guys are doing. Yeah. So it, it's kind of a separate thing with uh, the regulation of safety and 
what we do is funding equine research, right? Um, we do have some projects and some crossover, but I think a lot of theirs is going to be learning from real case studies. Uh, you know, instead of designing a research project and doing it, the Heise guys are going to have the opportunity to uh, learn in real time because they're watching uh, and learning as their mm-hmm. horses are running. So it's going to be interesting. I want to save a bit of time for us to dive into, you know, really talking about the topics from the summit this year, because there might be somebody who listens to the Amplify podcast who, you know, maybe doesn't know a lot about the sport, but they want to watch the summit and learn, but maybe the, the information is still a little bit too high level for them. So Jamie, would you be able to give us a, you know, a brief overview of some of the main takeaways from each of the presenters? Yeah. I know be, that's a lot, but no, no, I no, think no. it might be good to just kind of boil it down. Yeah. So there's, t- there's basically, we had 10, 10 kind of pods presentations uh, that we'll just go through them as they came. And I think the first one is the equine injury database and that's Dr. Tim Parkin. And I think the main take home there is uh, what we were saying we started not knowing any fatalities and now we've been able to show a decrease, uh, a significant decrease in those years. So uh, almost every, well, I think we have 98 or 99% of the starts in the United States uh, covered under the database with only a few fares out there. Maybe they're still lagging, not included. Uh, but Dr. Parkin monitors that every year. He gives risk factors and we try to publish the, and we publish those statistics. So the really take home is that we've been able to decrease fatalities using and measuring uh, these things. Um, the next one was Dr. Bramlage and he did a great, uh, this was probably the most technical of all. And this was building a two-year-old uh, thoroughbred for racing. Uh, it's always good to reinforce that exercising and racing two-year-olds is good for their skeleton and good for their uh, racing career and build strong bone. Uh, so that's what Dr. Bramlage did, and he came in and did, uh, told us how and why we saw uh, increase in fatalities during 2020 with two-year-olds and why it's gone back down and how the bone builds related to the cardiovascular and other systems of the horse. So it was fascinating. Um, that I think that might have been my favorite. I, I know I probably shouldn't pick favorites, but... That and the regulatory veterinarian panel, I thought were just so fantastic. And, yeah, you know, I, I think I've read, I've read plenty of things about why it is important to race two-year-olds, but then to have him actually bring up diagrams and talk about the science of bone development and, you know, how, how the bone essentially becomes more durable was so, so cool. So anyways, just had right. to add my two cents on that. It was amazing. Denise, you're absolutely correct. As we like to tell Dr. B, thank you so much. Where do we pay our tuition? Because <laughs> we learned, uh, I, I'm fortunate enough to interact with Dr. Bramlage a lot. Uh, and every time I'm with him, I learn something, whether that's meeting for coffee or hearing a presentation like this. So he's a wealth of knowledge and we're lucky to have him in our um, the next was the California Equine Safety and Welfare California Perspective. Dr. Dion Benson, who is the Chief Veterinarian Office at First Racing in the Stronic Group, and Dr. Ryan Carpenter, who's actually a private surgeon, 
came out and talked about the relationship and how California has undergone their welfare and uh, safety changes the past two years. Uh, and really the intense spotlight they're on, they're on out there. And a new uh, surgery, fetlock arthrodesis, that Dr. Carpenter is performing on uh, injured horses out there uh, that the Stronach Group pays for. Uh, and quite frankly, it's been very successful in saving horses and rehoming them for comfortable, successful lives, uh, whether it be a backyard animal or a, a friend, a limited walk trot horse later in life. So a uh, very cool program out there with them performing surgeries on their own dollar. Um, Dr. Jerry Hill came over and discussed the new BHA program about supporting jockey weights, well-being, and fitness. Um, the uh, BHA took out um, saunas during COVID and increased the weight scale of weights, and they've made that permanent now. And he came over to talk about how uh, VHA is proceeding with the redo of their weighing rooms, the process of getting licensing, and how they support jockeys uh, throughout their career in the VHA. And so after Dr. Hill, uh, we moved on to a, a new, very innovative topic, which is equine wearable technology. Um, this is fascinating to me because you talk about generating data, Caitlin. They are uh, sending over in some cases and storing uh, five to 8,000 pieces of data uh, for stride and could see footfalls on some of this equine wearable technology. So it's mm -hmm. a gy gyro accelerometer, which is a fancy way of saying we can measure speed, force, and direction, right? And... So you think about this, and on a horse, we're able to see a footfall, we're able to see stride length, we're able to see stride frequency, we're able to see efficiency mm -hmm. of the animal, uh, and all these things that data is generating us and telling us this is the way the horse is moving. And so we, fascinating. Yeah, it's, it really is. And the, the, the U.S. is kind of late to the game on this, and other uh, countries have been using it, and we actually funded a project down at Australia at the University of Melbourne that looked at Tasmanian racing and putting putting these uh, uh, devices on their horses since 2009. So we had over a decade's worth of data, and our uh, data oh, wow. models were able to show that horses' strides. We saw a difference in their strides four to five races before they suffered a fatality. So, oh my God! Yeah, wow. yeah, fascinating, right? So, and it was a real small one. You can't see with the human eye, but the data indicates yeah. it. Yeah. So we wow. We, Even not being a data like a niece, uh, I'm not necessarily a math and science person. I'm definitely communication, <laughs> but um, I can still appreciate. You know, I'm um, my. A significant other is uh, is an engineer, and so um, I'm surrounded by engineers a lot. So I can appreciate the um, the minutia and the data, um, like what you said, what that offers that would never be um, able to be perceived by just the human eye. Yeah. Well, hey, let me sidebar on your engineer. Okay. So every year at Grayson, we give away two postdoc awards, one for Lucy Hamilton provides for the Stormcat Award, 
and the Klein family provides the Elaine and Bertram Klein Family Foundation Award. And these are for scientists who have got their doctorate, they're trying to move on from their postdoc, and they just need a little bit of extra help. So we provide two $20,000 salary stipends every year to two individuals. Well, this past year, yeah, we we would encourage people to continue in equine research, right? Don't leave. Keep doing equine research. Look, this is a good way. So we just think it's a good way to encourage that. Usually, Fantastic. yeah, well, this is, you'll, your husband will love this one then, or significant other, excuse me, uh, of, <laughs> of um, this year, we, we gave away three, and the reason we did is because our review committee said, hey, these two are really good. You have a third one here that's an engineer, and we said, okay, why do we need to do this? And they all look at us and said, are you serious? Every horse health uh, project we do now has an engineer on it we need to continue yeah. we need to continue engineers to get in this industry so this uh lady actually is a doctor in sue stover's lab at uc davis so we gave her another twenty thousand dollar stipend this year to encourage her to continue in equine research as an engineer that is so wow. so cool and i think that, that really oh, yeah. it illustrates that there are so many jobs in the industry that or that apply to the industry that aren't just, you know, a lot of kids think they can be a jockey or a trainer or a vet. <laughs> and getting back to the, you know, the equine wearable technology panel, um, I was talking to Joe Applebaum, who's the president of the New York Thoroughbred Horsemen's Association, who moderated that panel. We were talking the night before. Um, at the the little pre-summit gathering and he was really expressing to me about the importance of recruiting data scientists into the industry because the more data that we build up and we have all these different data points there are so many different ways of using it you know to have people who can analyze it and then tell us how best to direct our efforts is going to be a really really important role going forward into the future and Jamie, what kind of um, roles is the engineer able to take on? Are they looking kind of more at developing uh, like veterinary uh, imaging technology or is this more of a um, like track maintenance aspect? Uh, all included, Timothy. Think about it. So we have to have in, uh, Dr. Uh, Peterson actually is an engineer for the track surfaces. So obviously there's a lot of engineering and engineer that goes on there. But for our projects, a lot of the engineering is for project design. It's for measuring of forces inside the project. It's for uh, measuring those things that are not veterinarian related inside of a horse project, whether that be laminitis, the pressure of the hoof on the floor, whether that be the pressure of the sesamoids of the suspensory at full stride and the interaction with the horse and the racetrack. So it's a wide range of engineering skills that are being used inside equine research. Wow. Well, I will let my um, eventual husband to be, uh, I will let him know if he is ever wanting to make the switch from a uh, oil and gas and <laughs> um, chemical engineering. Yeah. He is a handicapper. Um, he loves horse <laughs> racing. So. Yeah. So, you know, Dr. Ma- uh, Peterson, who runs the service lab actually, uh, worked uh, has worked with 
not only uh, tire companies, but shoe companies for the interaction of those materials to the ground as well. So uh, engineering. Wow. Yeah. It, fascinating. He, so he's also, um, he's a, a marathon runner. And so he is very interested, you know, he knows the importance of a good running shoe. Um, so I'm sure that would be fascinating to him as well. And the way that these things intersect, again, it's just, you know, like Anise said, uh, people think about the industry and they think, oh, well, it employs, you know, jockeys, um, trainers and vets, but it's so much more than that. Yeah. I mean, I think right now we have somewhere in the neighborhood with the, some of the COVID delays, 40 to 45 active projects at 20 universities on three continents. Um, wow. So yeah, we, a ton of stuff and we have, um, we do not have one project that just has one investigator. Every project we has, has, oh, I would say at least four, if not six or seven investigator uh, techs, uh, co-investigators, staff uh, at the colleges, et cetera. So uh, a lot of different careers inside of those as well. And he's just, as you were talking about. That's awesome. Very good to know. So let me, let me get back to the summit because it's important stuff. So we talked about the PET scan, the positron emission tomography and the knowledge gained from over a thousand racehorse fetlocks and our ability now to see these diagnostic images and the bone bruising in places that we've never been able to see before. Uh, it's going to have this new, that PET scan application is going to have, uh, th applications well beyond just the lower leg that originally in humans is for the detection of tumors. Uh, so we imagine other, uh, species of animals will now start PET scanning especially in those species where they have cancer is relevant and prevalent uh, in dogs, probably. So our equine research is going to benefit other animals outside of horses in this thing. Uh, the Racing Services Testing Lab, Dr. McElraith came in. Dr. Peterson was actually sick and couldn't attend. But Wayne McElraith has been involved uh, in the lab since the beginning and came in and talked about the lab, updated it to what the new maintenance database is doing at the University of Kentucky and how people are using it uh, in coordination now with their equine injury database so you can relate maintenance records to the fatality. And then uh, Anise hosted Amplify Horse Racing uh, uh, and the importance of welfare and safety of the youth industry and the thoroughbred industry. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, well, quite frankly, our, we have an aging fan base and we'll continue to have an aging fan base. So we need to encourage as many young people as we can to not only be fans, but to want to work in the industry, just like we give postdocs. Uh, I think Keith is, or excuse me, I think Amplify has done a great job of doing the mentoring program to try to hook up those young individuals. It was really refreshing to hear uh, the individuals of your panel and these talk about not only hitting issue, hitting the issues head on, but doing them with a point of integrity and honesty. Uh, and that if you provide that honesty and integrity, that people are willing to uh, forego some of the production value, but they like the good access. So uh, if it looks sincere and it is sincere, uh, that that's probably the best form going forward for us in communicating what we're doing now there what what did you think about it or what did you guys say afterwards Anise? 
You know, it was interesting. I think my favorite takeaway from our panel or my favorite point made and, you know, Deja kind of brought it up and then Eric Resendez followed up by talking about how intimidating it can be as a young person initially to get involved in the industry and um, with you know, the amount of information and data and the nuances that are involved, and especially in this space of welfare and safety. And then Eric had this great point of saying, you know, and he was very honest. I think this took some courage to say, he was like, you know, I'm, I'm a student in the industry. I've been in the industry for a while, but I've, I've been at this summit all day. And there have been a lot of things from this that, that I haven't understood and that, you know, basically there's this desire to learn and young people want to learn. But I think um, also we as an industry have to have an understanding of we have to meet people where they are in terms of their knowledge and think about how we're packaging some of this information because we can have the most incredible, you know, data and resources and, and outcomes of, of different studies to show people that racing is improving and that we've done all these incredible things to support our horses. But if we're not packaging that to young people in a way that they can really understand, you know, they won't absorb it. So I think that was my takeaway that, you know, it's just something to be conscious of going forward. And that's something I think Amplify can hopefully continue to help with and providing or, you know, maybe boiling down things or providing resources in a way that, you know, shares incredible information and what is out there with, yeah. with people who are just it's getting started. point, Anise, because, um, and I do think that Amplify and, you know, I hope that we'll continue to, to do this and kind of like bridge that gap because, um, you know, as communications and marketing professionals, we know, we know that we're living in like a, a shorter, you know, news cycle, um, attention spans, like, you know, than ever before. Um, so, you know, handing somebody like a 500 page case study, um, you know, even myself, I'm quite a studious person, but that can even be like a bit daunting um, in saying like, you know, here's all this information, you know, mm -hmm. you synthesize it. Um, it's just, it's not necessarily uh, where a lot of people are at these days. Yeah. So it, so a life skill here maybe is uh, peer reviewed journals into a TikTok. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> I mean, I'd love to see someone give that a good shot. I, uh, I might need to, you know, add on some additional colleagues that are really good at, di at digesting science and who are also equally good at social media. <laughs> we'll yeah. work on that, Jamie. We'll work well, on no, that. I think it's a point well taken. And I, and you have uh, my permission to use anything that we have created here at Grayson or the Welfare and Safety Summit for anything you want for an Amplify. Uh, and if you need assistance or further explanation, you just always can call me and we can get you with a subject matter expert uh, for any of your guys. That would be awesome. I'm totally going to take you up on that. Yeah, yeah please Thank do. you so much because yeah. that is in a lot of our strategies, our social media strategies, um, education is, is huge. It's, you know, 
um, we we look to entertain and educate. Those are you, normally two of our main goals. You know, I think something interesting. Well, real quick, before I get to the last thing I was going to say, but uh, we, our last session was Keeneland and the Encompass programs. The Keeneland, Dr. Stuart Brown gave an excellent presentation with Chris Dobbins of Encompass about how they use the programs and the data that we provide through one of our companies to monitor and keep the horse population over the Keeneland and the Thoroughbred Training Center safe um, from monitoring between starts to uh, certain lists and programs and risk factors that they develop every day. And I think Dr. Brown gets his morning starts his morning uh, each day with six reports and it gives him the direction of what horses need to be looked at or, or what's going on with his horse population. So it was a great uh, presentation about how, using what currently is out there to keep the horse population safe. So I, I was really excited about that one because it's things that are being done right now at Keeneland. Right. Yep. Cool. <clears throat> Man, sorry, my voice there for a second. That is a thank you so much, Jamie. I think that that is exactly what I was hoping to get, you know, a brief summary of everything. And yeah. I think the way you just shared all of that is, you know, very concise and easy for someone who hasn't watched the summit yet to be able to understand or at least take that as a preview before they go on to watch it. Are there any last, you know, takeaway points that you'd like to add before we wrap it up? Yeah, I, I think something important for you all and Amplify and something that's easy to communicate to people that are getting in the game is this. Before every uh, horse race, every horse is pre-race inspected by a regulatory independent veterinarian for its physical, uh, and is it, can it compete physically today? And that's independent of a team, let's say, doctor. I don't know of any other sport in the world where its participants are screened by a medical, independent medical doctor to participate. So I just think that we are giving a level of care to these horses that just doesn't exist in the human world. And people just don't really want to accept it. It's easier just to say they're not doing anything. But... All of our animals are screened for physical inspection before and after. And I just don't know of other sports that are doing that. So I think we are kind of advanced in one way. And that is that our inspection of these are participants. Yeah. And even, um, even other equine sports, um, you know, I can tell you um, that that is not very typical for there to be um, like a pre-inspection at, um, Sorry, there's uh, an alarm going off in my building. <laughs> um, but that is not common for there to be like a, a pre-inspection. Normally it's done post um, at like a hunter jumper show um, if there appears to be an issue or, you know, like a random um, blood test. So I think that's a really important point to make that racing does that. Yeah. It, it, well, it I think... Go ahead, me. Sorry. No, no, no. I was going to just wrap it up. So you you go for it. Uh, it, it, it's just always something to me that is, uh, it, it's an above and beyond thing. Everybody can do, look at somebody after they're hurt, uh, but to do it before they compete to ensure integrity and safety to me is a, it, it's a gold star thing that we've done as an industry that's really helped us. 
Yeah. Absolutely. I think, yeah. I think that's a great. And um, Jamie, really quick, if um, you know, someone wants to go back and watch three player, they missed it. Uh, how can they do that? Yeah. So you can go to Grayson-JockeyClub.org, and we have links from there or on our YouTube page. I'm actually, when we get done here, I'm gonna we've up, I've uploaded the first morning sessions, and we're gonna upload the afternoon sessions this afternoon. So they'll all be on there. Or you can just click on play at eight hours and watch the whole eight hours if you really want to. Awesome. All right. Thanks. Thank you yeah. So much. We will we'll continue to share, you know, some of those takeaways from the summit and share the videos on our social media. It is definitely right along with our mission of educating. So we love sharing all that educational content. And thank you so much, Jamie. I feel like we could have actually had a part one and part two for oh. this podcast episode because we could probably talk to you all day. Anise, thanks. Yes. thanks so much, Caitlin, Timothy. Nice meeting you all. Anise, is nice talking and seeing you again. Uh, you are great. And thank you so much for hosting it. Anytime you all need anything, even if you just want to talk horse racing, I know I'm above the Amplify age, but I really appreciate what you're all doing. Uh, and just, I'm an admirer of your work ethic, and I think you all are great. Well, we welcome everyone. So we, we, we would love to talk horse racing with you any day, Jamie, and we're going to take you up on that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have you back on just to talk horse racing. <laughs> or maybe after, yeah, after the round table this summer could be a good yeah, follow-up or something that would be great Sweet. well thank that... you so much this has been uh, absolutely fantastic thank you all so much i really appreciate it and like i said we're big fans of amplify over here and keep up the great work thanks have a great day Thanks for listening to this episode of the Amplify Horse Racing Podcast. Be sure to check out our website, www.amplifyhorseracing.org, and follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for more of our content. If you have any podcast ideas, please email us at info at amplifyhorseracing.org. We'll catch you next time.